You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Like Joanna said, my name's Elliot, and today we are continuing this series that we've titled Think as we um, look at some of the different ideas floating around in our society, some of the ideas that we encounter, and then also the things that influence um, the way that we think, things that influence influence us, and um, we might not even spend some time uh, thinking about the ways these shape how we think. So this series has been really fun so far, and today we're going to uh, shift a little bit, and we're going to look at the topic of history. This is a big topic, mainly because there is a lot of history. There's a lot of stuff that has happened. And so as we go through this, this very important topic, um, what I, what I want to do is I, I'm going to kind of up front lay out kind of the landscape of where we find ourselves, how history is viewed, how we often think about the events of the past, um, how other people use the events of the past, and then I'm going to shift and focus on how the Bible presents the topic of history. So in this beginning portion, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out three realities or perceptions about history, and as I go through these, I'm I'm going to kind of put them all on the table individually And then I'm going to tie them together and help us see how these really affect the landscape in terms of what's going on. So I'm going to go uh, through this kind of quickly. So the the series is titled Think. So get those thinking caps on. Stick with me. I think you're really going to benefit from this. Um, But there is some of these ideas are pretty big ideas that we got to get on the table. So the first one we're going to uh, start to unpack is the reality that history matters. History matters. It could tell us who we are what's important in the moment, and where we are headed. Now, we know this from experience. We've all experienced this. If you're um, in business and you hire new employees, what you ask for is you want to see their resume, you want to know past work experience. You're using their history to try to figure out who is this individual that I'm about to put on my payroll. History helps us know who people are. But then history also helps us look to the future. If you're in any kind of forecasting for production or purchasing inventory, What you do is you look back to the past. What are the trends? What took place in the past in history that's going to determine what's going to happen in the future? So we use past trends to make projections and forecasts on the future. But then we also know that history helps us know what's most important in the moment. And there's actually real-world consequences to forgetting history and forgetting what's most important in the moment. Husbands Um, often learn this the hard way when they forget important dates like birthdays and anniversaries. Because when those important dates roll around on the calendar, those dates that sometimes are forgotten, then they realize, oh, I'm I'm not putting what's most important in the top spot right now because I've forgotten what this important day means. And so history, it not only tells us who we are, not only tells us where we're headed, but it also helps us inform the present. So how we think about the past and how we understand those events that took place a long time ago in our past, also in the world, what we think about those is going to inform who we are, what's most important in the moment, and it also shapes where we're headed. So that's the first thing on the table. Second thing is um, we have a complicated relationship with history. And it's complicated partially because Uh, We often forget the events of the past, but also we don't like, we don't always like the way those events from the past impact what we want in the moment. And this is most obvious uh, with little kids. They don't always like how the the events of the past impact what they want to get in the moment. My 
um, kids recently were watching television, and I was gone in the morning, and so um, they were watching some shows, and then when I got home, um, Allie, my wife, and I were talking about what we were going to do for the rest of the day, and um, we decided to go do some different things. So I got the kids together and say, okay, guys, we're going to go you know, do X, Y, and Z for the rest of the day. We're going to go have fun. And one of the kids said, well, can we watch TV? And I knew that they had already watched two episodes of this show because Allie had told me that they had watched two episodes of this show. So I responded and said, no, we already watched some TV. You guys already watched some TV. We're not going to watch any more TV today. And you know what they said? They said, we didn't watch any TV. They rewrote the events from the past in order to get what they wanted in the present. The truth of what happened took a backseat to what they desired. And we as adults, we do this too. You see it in kids, but you also see it in adults. We hide facts about our past because we, want people, we don't want people to view us differently. We embellish stories that make ourselves look better. If people have hurt us or we're upset with them in order to get even, we're willing to alter facts to make them look bad. It's common for the facts to get set aside in order for us to get what we want in the moment. But it turns out this doesn't just happen on an individual level, but political parties, individuals who are in power, governments, nations, they do this as well. They want something, they think they deserve it, and they're willing to do what it takes to get it, even rewriting or editing the events of the past. I want to show you a picture. It's a very iconic image. It was a picture that was taken in 1989 in Beijing, right outside of Tiananmen Square. And what had happened, uh, many of you are going to recognize this picture, but what had happened is over a period of time, there were these uh, pro-democracy protests led by students against China's Communist Party. It was taking place there in Tiananmen Square, and it kind of built up over time to the point where the party finally came in and put the protests to an end. And hundreds of students were killed as a result of the military coming in and squashing these protests. And this picture was taken, the tanks are leaving Tiananmen Square and this individual steps in front of the tanks. In this picture, there were journalists on the scene, there were news cameras rolling, photographers. This picture circulated the globe. These are events that we knew, we know take pla took place and we know the events and the circumstances and all that was going on around it. But in China, this is no longer talked about. Actually, it's banned to talk about these events. It's not in textbooks. You're not allowed to show films of it. You're not allowed to talk about it anymore. So increasingly, fewer and fewer people know about the events that took place and what China's Communist Party carried out in 1989. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they, why are they rewriting history or editing the facts out? Well, we know why. We know because the events, of this, the events that this portrays, the story that these pictures tell, they don't line up with the story that China's Communist Party wants people to believe in the moment. And so because the events of the past don't line up with what they want in the present, they're willing to edit them out or rewrite them or remove them. Just like little kids do this, just like we as adults do this, people in power will do the same thing. And because of this willingness to alter facts in order to advance our desires, the desires either of the individual or a political party, History is kind of degraded into this random assortment of facts and figures that really function as tools to be used by people to get what they want. And that's the second important thing that we need to realize. History is viewed as a tool. If the facts are beneficial, you can use them. If the facts aren't beneficial, rewrite them. And in the process, the story of history becomes confusing and chaotic. 
because individuals or governments are deciding what's most advantageous to them, and they're willing to rewrite the facts of history to get what they want in the present. So it's confusing and chaotic. But that's not all that's going on. There's more going on. There's also the question about what role God plays in history. Because in the middle of the chaos and the confusion, we ask the question, how is God involved? Is God involved in history? And this is confusing because over time, people have pointed to stuff that's taken place and they've said, well, that was God. God did this or God did that. And they give reasons for God acting in certain ways. And some of the times that people say these things, it makes sense. And we can kind of nod our head and say, okay, I could see that. But other times it doesn't make sense. And we're kind of left scratching our heads saying, I, I don't think God operates in that way. Examples from history in Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, you can go and read what he said. He said that the Civil War, he made the claim that the Civil War was God's judgment on the nation, both the North and the South, for the evil of slavery. Now, that's one of those things that, you know, when he makes a claim like that, most people can say, okay, I can see that. That makes sense to me. But then, another time this happened in 1934, a group of German Christians, a large group of German Christians, put out a public statement right after Adolf Hitler took power, and they claimed that Hitler was given by God to save them from their difficult situation. That's one of those things that you're kind of scratching your head. I, I don't think you got that one right. So again and again through history, sometimes it's okay, well, this makes sense, but then other times it's like, ooh, I don't know. That, I don't think that makes sense. That doesn't appear to add up. And then what makes it even more confusing for us in our current circumstances is you have leaders, specifically Christian leaders, getting up and saying, okay, well, that over there, that happened for this reason God was doing that. He caused this. Or God caused that to happen over there, and here are the reasons why he caused that. Or this thing taking place in this area, it was God, and here are the reasons that God did that. And all of this kind of leaves us with this growing uncertainty about God's involvement in history. Because again, some of it makes sense, but some of it is like, hmm, I don't know. So among people that believe in God, there's just this growing uncertainty about is he involved? How is he involved? And then you add to this the reality that there are people who they don't believe God's a factor. Everywhere from atheists to people that just believe that God kind of set the world in motion and then has taken a hands-off approach. So you add those up, and the result is a general avoidance to point to anything in history as having to do with God. We are trained to view history without God, and this is the third reality. All the way from textbooks to biographies, documentaries, newspapers, history is simply about politics, economics, human interests, or the environment. Other ways to say this is politics is the struggle over power. Economics is the struggle for money. It's about greed. Human interest is social movements. The environment is what's going on in nature. I was talking to a history teacher as I was preparing for this, and he explained to me that one of the ways that history is taught um, in his school is in terms of God, gold, and germs. But when they talk about God, they're not re referring to this real person who's there and loves us and is interacting with us through history. They're referring to this almost like political power move in order to gain, gain control or manipulate populations. He's not a real person. It's just this power chip you put on the table to get people to do what you want to do. Those are kind of the main terms that are used to explain what's been going on through history. Because when we remove God from the table, the categories are simply politics, whoever's in power, power makes sense of things, economics, money, greed, gold, whatever you want to call it, human interests, and the environment. God's removed from the equation.
So if you add these three up, so if we take, so we kind of got these three things on the table. History is important because it tells us who we are, what's important in the moment, where we're headed. History is viewed as a tool. We rewrite the past in order to get what we want in the present. And then the categories we use, because we've removed God, the categories are really boiled down to politics, economics, human interest, and the environment. When you add these up and move them together, the result of that is, is how we view history answers how we make sense of our lives. So if you view history primarily from a political perspective, if, if it's really just a struggle of power, the oppressed versus the oppressor, then how you understand yourself and your, your present moment is going to be through a political lens. How you derive your identity is going to be based on your political identity. Same thing, if it's the economy, if you view it primarily in economic terms, then what you think is most important in the moment is going to be based on what's happening in the economy because that's how you interpret the pass-through, and so that's informing how you prioritize your moment in the present. Same thing in the environment. I mean, if you think that the, the past is simply interpreted through the lens of the environment and what's happening in nature, then when you project out on the future and try to figure out where we're headed and what's going to happen in the future, it's usually going to be based on your ideas of what's going on in the environment, what's happening in nature. If, if, if it's politics and your group's in power, then when you look to the future, you're probably hopeful. But if it's politics and you look to the future and your group is in the decline, then your view of the future is going to be pretty negative. And then you add to this that we've kind of simplified the categories. We've removed God, and so we've just got politics, economy, human interest, and the environment. And then you add to this the reality that all the way down from my little kids, all the way up through powerful governments, we're surrounded by people who are willing to change the facts of the past in order to get what they want in the moment. They view history as a tool to get what they want, to stay in power or to gain power or to get our money, whatever it might be. Again, it's, history is chaotic and confusing. And for us as Christians, there's just this growing uncertainty of what in the world is going on here because we've simplified the categories, and then we've removed God, and then all the way from us up through major organizations and governments, people are willing to rewrite the facts for power. Thankfully, this isn't where we have to stay, because the Bible helps us break free of the chaos and the confusion, and the Bible helps us gain certainty amidst all the uncertainty. So I want to shift, and I want to focus on kind of give you guys an idea of what the Bible says about history. And before I do that, if, you're, if you have the question, well, Elliot, can we even believe the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? That's a great question, a question that you need to ask. And Bevan did a, a message on this titled, Isn't the Bible Made Up by Men? So on the YouTube link, if you go on YouTube later, in the description, there's going to be an audio link to a message Bevan gave about how we got the Bible, who wrote the Bible, how it was assembled over time, how it compares to other ancient documents, because the stuff I'm going to say about how the Bible views history, well, if you don't think that the Bible is trustworthy and it's just this fanciful fairy tale, well, then you're going to really struggle. So go back and do the work of figuring out, can we even trust the Bible? And we've got a message for you guys to listen to on that. But I want to dive into kind of the Bible's view of history, because the writers of the Bible, they put a major emphasis on history. While other people in the ancient world were focused on superstitions, animism, kind of the God behind every rock, or astrology, the Hebrew people paid close attention to history. 
They were intent on observing what happened in and around them because they believed that God was personally alive and active in the world, in their community, and inside of them as well. They believed that he was a person who loved them and interacted with them in the flow of history. He wasn't the universe. He wasn't a star. He wasn't an energy. He was real, alive, and active. He was interacting with history, and he was interacting with people in the events and times and places in which they lived. So they, they paid very close attention to what was happening in history. One Bible scholar put it this way when describing what they believed. He said, God was alive, always and everywhere, working his will, challenging persons with his call, evoking faith and obedience, shaping a worshiping community, showing love and compassion, and working out judgment on sin. And none of this, in general or at large, but at particular times in specific places with named persons, history. It was in the flow of history that individuals would get to decide to follow God or not follow God. And so the writers of the Bible paid very close attention to history. They knew how important this was. I want to show you one example from the book of 1 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings are kind of a record of the kingdom of Israel from King David all the way. That's kind of the pinnacle of the kingdom through there's a civil war that these two books record. They record a 400-year history. There's a civil war, and then the kingdoms divide. You have the northern kingdom after the civil war, which retains the name Israel. They're later conquered by Assyria. You have the southern kingdom, which takes the name Judah. They're later conquered by Babylon. But the books of First and Second Kings are history books that record what happens in the kingdom, and they're called kings because they're focusing on the rulers, the people that were in charge. But as they record this history, there's this recurring theme. If you read through it, you, it's, not just, it's not just names and events, but in the middle of the names and events, there's this recurring opportunity to follow God or ignore God. And as the book is written, one of the questions that's being answered is not just what happens, but in terms of the relationship between the individuals and the God who made them, how are the individuals doing in terms of that relationship? Are they growing? Are they continuing to take him seriously? Or are they headed in the wrong direction? So I want you to see an example of this. The beginning of 1 Kings chapter 2, David, most prominent king in Israel's history, he's speaking to his son Solomon. Solomon's the, the takes over the kingdom after David. And Solomon, if you know the story at all, you know he's famous for his wealth, he's famous for his wisdom, and he also wrote some of the books of the Bible. And in this transition, David tells Solomon what's important. He says this in chapter 2. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. That's key because the law of Moses, this is, this is their heritage. They know who wrote that book, that, that series of books. They know when it came from. They knew the people. They knew the places and the events. It's not just some random book that appeared, but they knew how it was collected. They knew how God instructed them to live. He goes on. He says this. He says, do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that, you, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. So David's now referring to a promise God gave to David. If your descendants watch how they live, if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. So David starts Solomon's reign, and he lays it out there. He says, hey, Solomon, you have a part to play. God has a part to play. You take him seriously, you walk faithfully with him, you obey him, do what he says to do. He's made promises, he's faithful, he's going to support you, he's going to bless you. You have a part to play, he has a part to play. It's just like any relationship. 
it's two-sided. So David lays it out there for Solomon. And then you read through the rest of Solomon's story, and it's answering the question, okay, so how did Solomon do? And as you read it, what you see is, if you just look at the major events, it looks like Solomon's doing pretty good. Kind of the big days where he's got to show up, it looks like he's doing pretty good. He, he grows in wisdom. He, he sets up structure in the kingdom so that people are treated justly. He teaches the people God's word. He builds the temple. He does some really good things. But through that record, there are these little footnotes that are kind of buried in there that if you read them, you might just kind of gloss over them. But what they're doing is they're kind of pulling back the curtain and saying, well, this is really what's going on inside of Solomon's heart. So one of the references is uh, to a marriage between Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. So Solomon marries his daughter to set up this treaty between Israel and Egypt because peace treaties were brokered in marriage at that period of time. Because, I mean, kind of like today, you don't want go to law, go to war with your in-laws. So they would set up these treaties by, you know, if you didn't want to fight with this nation, just marry a member of the royal family and you'd be set. But what that's pointing to is what Solomon is struggling with in that point is he's struggling with, okay, am I really going to trust God or am I going to set up these political insurance policies? So it doesn't like condemn the action, but it just points to he's struggling. He's got a divided heart and he's trying to figure out what's most important. Then the story goes on. He does some really impressive things. And one of those things is he, he builds a temple for God in the city of Jerusalem, this very, very impressive temple. And after the temple's built, they have this major ceremony, and Solomon has this, this prayer that he prays to God, this prayer of remembering what God's done and asking for God's blessing, and God actually shows up and speaks, and God says, hey, if you, know, if you guys take me seriously, remember what I've done, live this way, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to continue to protect you. But there's this, again, there's this little footnote that's buried in there that's really interesting. It says this, 1 Kings 6, at the end of chapter 6, beginning in chapter 7, says, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year, in the month of Ziv, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. So again, it's pointing to specific times and places. These really happened in real history. Then this little note, he, Solomon, had spent seven years building it, the temple. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. This is pointing out that, okay, Solomon starts good. He prioritizes the things of God. He spends seven years building the temple. It was a big, impressive temple. But then when he gets a chance to do what he wants to do, 13 years building his own palace. 13 years focusing on the things that he wants to do. It's a subtle comment, but what it's pointing to is this shift that's taking place inside of Solomon's heart. It's not, it's not overnight, it's not all at once, but over time, what Solomon decides to do is instead of focusing on the things that God wants him to focus on and prioritizing God, he starts out pretty good, but over time he decides, you know what, I, I really want to do the things that I want to do. I really want to put, put myself first. And Solomon's story actually ends in 1 Kings 11, and the thing that's said about Solomon is his heart had turned away from God. It wasn't in an instance, it wasn't overnight, but through the flow of history, over and over, day after day, he kept getting to decide, okay, am I going to take God seriously or am I going to ignore God? And over time, he kept putting himself first. And you read it, and what happens as a result of Solomon's reign, instead of the kingdom being blessed and heading in the right direction, the kingdom actually is left in shambles and enters into a civil war right after Solomon's reign. He had all these opportunities to take God seriously, but through the flow of history, God was interacting with him, and Solomon decided not to. So then God goes to the next guy in the story, and he goes to the next guy, and he says, okay, this is the circumstance you find yourselves in. You didn't create this. But this is what you find yourself in. 
well, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to take me seriously? Or are you going to ignore me? And then to the next guy, God does the same thing through the flow of history, going to individuals saying, okay, are you going to follow me? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to obey me? Or are you going to ignore me? And are you going to reject me? And you read through that story, and what you see in the books of First and Second Kings is some of the kings were good. Some of the kings really wrestled with God and made some decisions to follow him, but a lot of them ignored him. A lot of them did a lot of evil, but all of them were complicated just like us, and in their place and time, the question they faced was, am I going to take God seriously, or am I going to ignore God? Because it was in their time and location that they lived in where they had to decide if they were going to follow God or not, because he was actively working through the events of history, person by person, giving them opportunities, the exact same thing he does today. So not only is God doing that, and that's an important perspective on history is God is interacting with us, giving opportunities for us to follow him. But there's also something even bigger going on that I want to point to. God's not just interacting with individuals on a person-by-person level. The Bible shows us that history is actually headed in a specific direction, and God is in control of it. The term we use is the term providence. Providence refers to God's active oversight of the events of history towards his intended end. Here's kind of what it looks like on a chart. God started history. God's plan started history at creation. And even though evil entered into the world, God continued to reveal his plan and move things forward. So to individuals like Abraham at specific times and specific places, or Moses, real people that lived, or David, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, just go down the list. God kept showing up over and over again through history saying, here's my plan, here's what's going to happen. Then eventually, Christ is born. Christ, the one that divides our calendars into before him and then after him, the year of our Lord. Christ shows up, and when he comes, he he calls people to follow him. He gives his life to forgive us of sins. He says, okay, my followers are going to gather together in the church. That's going to be kind of the hub of my, my advancement of my kingdom and the mission that I'm doing in this world. And he sends them off, and then it says at some point in the future, What God's going to do is he's going to fulfill history. This plan he's had from the very beginning that he's in control of and he's advancing over time, he's going to wrap all that up in the end. And you and I, where we stand on this kind of timeline of history, we're somewhere between Christ, an event that really happened in history, and somewhere between the end when he wraps it up and he fulfills it. But the Bible presents this idea that through history, God, in his providence, is continuing to move the plan forward. Amidst all the evil and the chaos and the confusion behind that, God is still working. A verse on that or a passage is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Isaiah was one of the prominent prophets in Israel's history. And the prophets, what they would do is they would help the people understand God's activity at a given time. So Isaiah writes, and he's speaking for God, and this is what he writes He says, remember this, God is speaking, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old. So he's saying, remember history, remember what happened in the past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. What God is saying is he's saying, hey, I was in the control from the beginning, and I'll be in control from the end. I'm moving it to my plan. 
providentially through history, God is working his plan and is going to bring it to his intended end, actively bringing the events of history to location that he wants them. Those are the two big ideas about history that the Bible presents us with, that through the flow of history, he's giving you and me, the individuals, the opportunity. Are we going to follow him or not? And then through the flow of history, he's got an even bigger plan, and he's bringing it to his intended destination. Now, something that you and I hear quite often is this idea of being on the right side of history. You hear people toss this around. Oh, you want to be on the right side of history, or we're doing this so that we're on the right side of history. There's actually something to that. There's something that we really need to pay attention to and consider. One of the challenges is, is the categories used to kind of define this moment in history are the same categories we use to consider what happened in the past. It's based on you know, your view of politics or some, environment, some economic theory or some human interest thing that's happening in the moment or even something dealing with the environment. Those are usually the categories that we use kind of to, to define this, mo- this moment in history. Those draw the line. The problem is those categories are too small. They do not draw the line of history. The category that draws the line of history is God. He's the one who's in control of history. He's the one who started history. And you and me, in this moment we find ourselves in in history, the question we have to answer is, are we going to take him seriously and follow him, or are we going to ignore him and work against the plan that he's working? That's the question that we have to answer at this moment in history that we find ourselves in. Because in a final assessment of history, when everything's fulfilled and everything's wrapped up and we can clearly see through the chaos and confusion and with certainty understand what God was doing, in that final assessment of history, what everyone will realize is God was in control and what he planned to happen is in fact what did happen through the flow of history. That what his word, the Bible says about how life works and what's going to happen is really how life works and how we're supposed to live. And the challenging thing is, for all of us, we're going to prove that that's true. Whether we take him seriously and experience the benefits of a relationship and walk with him and work with him, we're going to prove it's true. Or even if we work against him and ignore him, in the end, we're still going to prove that he was in control. So the question of, well, which side of history are you on? It's really not a political question or an economic question or environment question. It's a, where do you stand in relation to the God who put history in motion and will move history to his end? And the question is, okay, are you standing on the side where you're going to benefit from the relationship, or are you standing on the side where you work against him? But that's what the Bible says about history. That's where it's headed, and that's what's going to happen. So we do need to be on the right side of history. But it's not about these other categories. It's about where do we stand in relation to the God who started history. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you did not give us this book, the Bible, by just some random event that wasn't verifiable. But over time, you continued to step into history to show us that history is important. We don't find our meaning in our lives by removing ourselves from history. We don't find meaning in our lives by ignoring history. But when we pay attention to what's happened in the past, view it from your perspective and your angle, we learn more about who we are, what's important, and where we're headed. So Father, I pray that as we consider history, we would look at it through your lens. And the question we would continuously ask ourselves in the moment 
is am I living the way that God wants me to live? Am I taking him seriously? Am I walking with him? Am I growing the relationship? Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.